Thanks for joining us. This is Bob Hawkins. I'm a global lead for technology innovation at the World Bank. And welcome to the World Bank EdTech podcast. This is our first edition, a conversation around education and technology globally. Today with us, we have Cristobal Cobo, who joined our team at the World Bank just about a year ago. And we're excited to have him both on the team and to uh, be with us for this first conversation. So Chris, maybe if you could just give us and the audience a, a little bit of history, kind of how you got into the ed tech field and uh, how you ended up with us at the World Bank. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. Very happy to, to join this conversation with you. Uh, actually, this is officially my first year, so it's going to be a kind of happy birthday conversation. In terms of the, the journey, I think the journey for me to end up here has been with three main stops. The first one was after doing my PhD in Spain, I ended up in Mexico. Working in Mexico, I was asked to do a national assessment of a very, very important program on, on digital technologies. It was a, a gigantic, very expensive and complex problem. And it was the very first time that I landed into that field. And I was very interesting. I knew little and I worked hard and, and I, it was a new field for me. But then after Mexico, I moved to the UK. And in the UK, now being interested in educational technologies, I moved to an institution uh, in which I enhanced not my policy part, but my academic part. So I work in a research center and I did a lot of research and understanding from the European perspective, how technology was incorporated in different spaces of learning. And then after UK, I moved to Uruguay, which was an interesting combination of the two experiences, a bit of policy and a bit of research. And I was more in the implementation part. I was working very close to the Plan CEVAL, this National Policy on Education Technology, and my role was to conduct studies, but not from the academic exclusive point of view, but more in the intersection between the policy implementation. So this has been, in a nutshell, my preparation to join the tech team here in Washington. Those are some good stopping points uh, along the journey. Your first experience in Mexico, so a complex problem. Introducing a, a technology is always complex. What was the complexity that you had in, in, in Mexico? It was... Uh large-scale implementation of smart boards all over the country. These touch screens, very big in terms of size, and the new president back then, President Vicente Fox, was planning to deploy these smart boards all over the country. Mexico is a huge country, it's highly diverse, and it's complex in terms of geography. So the boards were, these smart boards called Encyclomedia, were distributed in helicopters, over donkeys, over trucks, all over the place. And of course, the deployment wasn't a trivial scene because it's fairly challenging to train teachers with a device that really requires high level of, of preparation. On the positive side, it was a kind of a Encarta integrated, so you could have a lot of resources without needing internet. That was the positive side. On the challenging part, the deployment was more effective than the teacher training approach. So at the end of the day, in limited amount of time, many of those resources weren't, of these smart boards were not used properly. And then it was very important to do an assessment to understand what is working and what is not. Now, we, we did a, a project in Sao Paulo uh -huh. uh, using smart boards as well. And the government was very clear that they didn't want to use technology uh, with a student-centric approach, but wanted to keep the teacher-centric approach and use the smart boards as a kind of an in-class, just-in-time teacher training mechanism. Uh -huh. uh, so it was a metaphor of the chalkboard. Instead of sitting at the chalkboard and, and writing, having the smart board kind of give the teachers prompts every once in a while to stop writing, turn to the class, 
uh, ask a question, break up into small groups. So they wanted it as a medium to reflect their pedagogy that they were used to, but to introduce some kind of changes in their pedagogy in the classroom. So that was an interesting approach. And was it a good experience? Well, it never got funded. Uh, it was oh. too expensive. So uh, it was super expensive. That's right. That's one yeah. of the problems. So Sebal, so you were in the midst of the largest one-to-one -one experiment in the world uh, at the time, and we're evaluating it. What are your impressions of how that project came about? What were some of the main issues you were looking at and what you thought was interesting during your time there? If we jump 15 years back in the time, MIT was launching this one laptop per child initiative offering low-cost computers that could benefit a large search of students who didn't have the basic resources to acquire them. So this idea of enabling access was very exciting and the MIT was in the spotlight for quite a bit of time on this idea led by Negroponte. And Negroponte was aiming to go for large countries, uh, meaning India, Brazil, countries with large population. And Uruguay, which is a super tiny country, only 3.5 million inhabitants, was interested in testing something like that. Back then, Summit of Information Society, I think they presented this innovation and Uruguay was trying to get to Negroponte to implement it. But Negroponte, the truth is he really wanted to address larger countries. So Uruguay wasn't particularly attractive in terms of the size population if you compare India with Uruguay. But anyway, at the end of the day, they managed to catch his attention and they tested the technology and they started with a lot of support from the president back then, which I think was happening in many countries. They wanted to provide the access to these devices. But interestingly, being Uruguay a small country was feasible to ensure that every single kid would have, would have access to those computers and connectivity to every single school, which even today, 15 years later, is a dream for many, many countries. But anyway, that was done at the early stage in two, three years, around 2010, that goal was achieved. But then the truth is that is the beginning of the story. When you start offering deployment of infrastructure, that is only the beginning. Then you have to go for many other non-technical infrastructure that you need to be addressing. Teachers changing in the practices. And so, so how was the discussion with MIT on this? Because I, I think sometimes Negroponte is quoted as saying, we just need to get the laptops in the hands of the children and magic happens, which I think is often case a huge challenge. What was the discussion around going beyond the technology to all of these other aspects? So uh, I wasn't in Uruguay back then, but one of the beauties of this experience in Uruguay is they, at the beginning, I think they bought that idea. But then along the way, that policy was evolving and was challenging, was less centered on the gadget and more centered on the dynamics, was less centered on the technological infrastructure and much more on the human infrastructure. But that took a long, a long process. And around 2013, Michael Fullan, this very famous pedagogist from, from Canada, kind of reshaped Plan Seval, in which the gadget was less relevant, but already was there and with every kid having access to that. And most of the focus was not only on digital skills, but also on all the digital pedagogies and all these, these new dynamics that I think are today happening in Uruguay. So it's been a program that has been evolving along the Uruguay is fascinating because like so many countries at the time, these decisions weren't taken by the Ministry of Education, but were taken at the, the president's office. What, what was your experience in terms of the dynamic between the president's office working with kind of a, a, a semi-autonomous group from Plan Cebal 
and, and the Ministry of Education? Was that a positive or a, or, or a negative? There's no free meal. You know well that. So <laughs> you you earn and you lose. I think this is a trade-off yeah. that you need to balance. Broadly speaking, when Minister of Education wants to embrace and support these policies, it's not trivial because they have to buy technology, they have to talk with telecom people, they have to train teachers, they have to make partnership with editorial. There are so many stakeholders that they have to interact with. And many countries, they do that in an okay way. In this case, they decided uh, to design, as you said, an independent agency, depending from the presidency, not necessarily from the Minister of Education, although the Minister of Education was part of the board on the large decisions and the budget and all that, but in a much more agile kind of infrastructure, allowing them to quickly react, to work in some ways as a telecom or as a startup, testing and having trials and new versions in a much more dynamic way than the, the ones that you regularly see on the public administration. What was the trade-off? Well, you can move faster, but then you have to ensure that the, regardless of how fast you move, these things need to land into the classroom. So then you have to deal with other things like the not all the teachers are on board on the same page, not everyone is so equally excited with the technology, not all the pre-service trainings will embrace this transformation with the same level of enthusiasm. So having an entity outside of the administration is good on the one side, but on the other side, you can be a foreign partner within the organization. So there's some trade-off there. That's a fascinating uh, kind of analysis of where the capacity exists, what the mandate is. Is it the mandate of the Ministry of Education to go out and make all of these uh, partnerships that an independent entity could? And then, and then culture is, is another big piece. Well, one last question while we're still in Uruguay. So Michael Fullen, what was your sense of the ideas that he had around project-based learning and, and the role of a completely different pedagogy than what most systems are are set up for and what most curriculums are set up for with regard to the use of technology. How did that discussion come about and how has that uh, unfolded in terms of the engagement in, in Uruguay? It's a great question. I think Michael Fulan is the architect of the second part of Seibal. Um, and, and it's very interesting. Most of the technological programs, they have the pedagogical component, but doesn't really play a major role. And what they decided to do in Uruguay is in a fairly early stage, or half of the development of the program, say between 2007 and 2013, kind of the first years after the deployment, they invite this global expert on pedagogies to assess the program. How can you invite someone on the pedagogies to assess whether the computers are working? So he ran a lot of uh, interviews, he went to the fieldwork, he brought his, his team to do consultations, and he said, well, it's very nice that you have these computers, but you know what? In the classes, the transformation is very, very, very limited because you are allocating most of the energy on buying the right platforms and the softwares, but there are other transformations that need to take place. And then came this project-based approach, uh, understanding the schools as uh, nodes of a network, understanding the teacher as someone who also has the chance for learning, understanding that disciplines might be merged when you're talking about real-based problems, understanding that skills need to have the same level of priority than the curriculum or the con focus on the contents. And all these slight uh, but very drastic uh, redefinitions came out within the system through Seibal. In other words, Michael Fullan and his approach of new pedagogies for deep learning was a way of hacking the system within the system, talking about other languages, offering other opportunities. And then I think it was a massive transformation. Was it universal? Well, no, because there are some subsectors within the education sector or system that they don't like to do these things. It's obviously not for everyone, but those who were interested in being part of that 
uh, they create a, a massive, massive movement. Just before coming to the World Bank, this is an anecdote, they invite me to give a lecture to teachers, to the largest teacher event that they organize ever in the country, like 5,000 teachers talking about disruptive innovation. It wasn't literally in a stadium talking about how pedagogies can transform the school of the future. You're a rock star. Super fun, super fun. And But the most interesting thing and the lesson learned is a technological program started from the gadgets and evolved into the people. Yeah, you know, one of the first projects we did at the bank was a project called WorldLinks, which connected a number of pilot schools and uh -huh. focused on collaborative project-based learning. And that was like 20, 22 years ago. It's still amazing to me that it's been such a difficult journey for, for project-based learning to take hold in, in education systems. And now there is you know, it possible now to expand that based on your experience? Is it possible to expand uh, this approach of much more problem-based learning? No, I mean, I, you have to have, I think, a, a radical change in the uh, curriculum. You need to free up space uh, in the curriculum to do this type of innovation. The experiences we've had is that this type of work is done as extracurricular activities or at the university level. But in, in secondary school curriculums, trying to fit uh, a project-based learning uh, approach into a 45-minute math uh, course or any course is, is, is really, really difficult. That's right. But at the same time, you and I have discussed the experience of Israel with the yeah. uh, Davison Institute and using some gadgets to have appointments with scientists and talking about things that are happening within the lab. So I think we have amazing amount of teachers of the future. The problem is they are not evenly distributed. <laughs> exactly, yeah, the, the, the future is, is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Well, Finland is focused on revising their curriculum in this direction towards more of a problem-based focus with much more collaborative learning. Finland is, is leading the way with some of these reforms and it'll be interesting to follow them. Um, and, and, and the skill connection, this is an interest of mine, is the extent to which project-based learning helps develop some of these 21st century skills, the creativity, the collaboration, the empathy, et cetera, which is, I think is another fascinating research area. One of the challenges I see is that uh, it's like Pendler. Sometimes everything is on content, so the people focus on content and the quality is based on that. Then it moves to competence and the competence is the only thing. I mean, you need knowledge to have good competence and you you need to have a right balance. And I think the, the education system really struggled to find this proper balance to have a diverse, a comprehensive, inclusive, and probably open education system that have dialogue with these two different visions that I think need, both need each other. But a big challenge is measurement. Education systems want to know whether learning is happening. And the easiest way to measure is through standardized uh, tests. And, and all too often, the curriculum is, is conformed and the teaching is conformed to what needs to be uh, on the test. Absolutely, absolutely. On the positive side, one of the good positive things that we are learning from this crisis, the COVID crisis, is countries, even universities, are more open of alternative ways of assessing the knowledge, which is not the traditional capacity of keeping all the contents in your head when you're tested. And this is super promising. We will see whether that really makes a change, but we are seeing in different countries national high-stake exams in which now you are allowed to have your internet working and your books open because they will test not your capacity to know the date of the last war, but how you solve a strange and unknown problem. Yeah, we'll see the extent to which assessment systems can mm. embrace technology for more formative, data-driven, real-time assessments where failure is, is to be expected uh, to a large extent. Absolutely. So you've had a happy birthday, by the way. You've had a, a very interesting year. What are some of your initial impressions of the World Bank before joining and then 
this wild ride we've been on this past year, getting up to speed, understanding the institution, and then the emerging COVID crisis that we've been working on for the past four months. Sure. Well, I think the beast looked very different from outside, no? So when I was when I was a close observer of this organization, I I regularly read the reports and I have some colleagues which I follow and it was certainly a reference, but I thought that the goal was much more on the technical part. Um playing an important influential role, but um, emphasizing on the te technicalities of the aspects and being more passive, addressing what is relevant, when, what do you need to take into account, but just limited to what is the technicality part of the contribution that you can give us as a multilateral organization. But I think being inside for this year, I, I have learned that it's not that you are looking these things from your own tower. The, the level of commitment of the success in the projects or to see the success of the countries implementing the practices, something that I have learned this year. So it's not only the technical team saying what is right and what is wrong, but working very close with the countries and the administration supporting with quality resources, with good practices, with advice, with uh, a number of conversations and knowledge transfer from different sources to make it happen. And so there is an ongoing process of learning back and forth. And I think this is very interesting for me because if the implementation doesn't succeed, it's not only the failure of the country, the organization also is part of that. I think for me, that has been super encouraging. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating part of the job. And as much as we try to gather the best evidence and, and try to gather the best practices globally, invariably one size never fits all. So mm. you have to always go in with a flexible, open mind to work with the realities that each country has. And the other thing is the diversity. Having worked in the tech field for 15 years or so before coming to the bank, I felt that pretty much I knew this field. And now I feel like I'm a newcomer. I'm always starting and there's so many different ways of understanding the problems. And many of the things that I see, usually I'm not seeing by my colleagues and my colleagues show me things that I don't see. It's a fascinating learning process because of the diversity of perspective and dimensions. And in an organization that is so multicultural that happened pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, that is excellent to hear. I'm glad I'm not the only one with uh, imposter syndrome. But <laughs> <laughs> I never quite know the answer. And uh, things are constantly changing around and I'm constantly adapting my mindset to, uh, to new realities. Uh, so welcome, welcome to the club. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so one theme that I know you have spent a lot of energy and attention on and you just come, came out with a book is, is the use of data I wonder if you can share some of your thoughts on some of the challenges and opportunities in your book. Is it a book or an ebook? I accept the terms and conditions. It's a book and an ebook in Spanish and English. Okay. It's an open source book that I wrote and then I searched for who wanted to publish it, but under the conditions to have it open access because I wanted to use that as a piece of conversation. So the subtitle is Uses and Abuses of Digital Technologies. I think technologies have opened us amazing number of opportunities. But the two is in the last couple of years, we have had some massive breakout news of how so some of the un unintended consequences of technology, some of the kitchen of the technology, the, the, the back office or the, the back door where a lot of information of the users is being used in many cases in ways that were not transparent, not clear. And most of the users, they don't have the technical knowledge. So they are in a passive position expecting for the organizations, the administrations, the regulations to support them. And that not always happen. So in a nutshell, we live in a world of economy of attention. So all the services are calling your attention, your 
attention is limited and we really struggle to administrate our attention, but your attention worth money. So you give your attention and you exchange that with data. And this data is enormously profitable. We don't know how to sell that data, but these organizations, they know how to do it very well and they sell our data all the time. And we don't even know where our data is. And, and the problem is sometimes there are misuse of those data and sometimes this data is used with good purposes, but this manipulate our attention, our decisions, our relationships. And if people would be prepared and well educated in, in that regard, that wouldn't be a problem. But I think most of the education systems at all level train on the use of these technologies, the um, uh, proficient use of the data or the attention or understanding how this uh, machines administrate and adjust the reality to some interests among others is not something that is always on the discussion. So that's why I thought it was an interesting idea to write a book about the, these inequalities, the new inequalities that just start the day after you have access to this technology. So, that, so that's, that's a lot. Let, let me see if I can unpack some of those issues in there. So data ownership and where that data resides. There's a certain element of trust and convenience and the ability to have big data sets that will provide additional value. So how do you balance that concept of my data by itself really isn't worth much, but when I aggregate it and share it with a, a Google or a Facebook, they can use that data to generate insights that might be beneficial to me. What are your thoughts on that perspective? Well, it's like votes in an election. No? Your vote doesn't worth anything, but if you aggregate all the votes, it's going to be changing the administration for the next couple of years. I don't think we have the proper regulations to address these new problems. And uh, it's quite evident that in most of the countries, even in the EU, there's a massive gap between the incredible capacity of these organizations to aggregate the data and to predict our patterns and the legislations that go way beyond. The GDPR in the EU is a good practice, perhaps, but it took them almost 20 years of the internet to catch up with that. It's not that everything has to be forbidden, but we can put more mechanisms of control. And in terms of this idea of individual and collective, I think there are at least three different paradigms. One is where the state controls the data, like the case of China, or they, where the individuals administrate and have control of the data, which is the case of the EU. And in this part of the world, you see more that the owner of the data are the companies which are offering this trade-off between attention and transaction. One of our big challenges is that we invest a lot in data systems. And one of the challenges we're constantly confronting are interoperability uh, between systems, data sharing, open APIs. In some countries, we have more than 180 different systems that uh, are siloed in different parts of the ministry, some out in the private sector. How should we be working more effectively with our clients to address this issue of where the data resides and what are maybe some policies around data ownership, data privacy, data interoperability that should be part of our dialogue. If you remember when Google, for instance, started with this idea of a personalized experience when they aggregate all your search and started to customize that for enhancing your experience, as they call it. It was a long time ago, it was 10 years ago, or something like that. And I wonder why we don't have these kind of conversations from the education point of view to make this data serve better learning experience. I think part of this is because we have a massive gap of skills. The market really rewards well those who want to be uh, computer scientists and those geeks, engineers who crunch this data in a profitable way. 
but in many cases that is not something that the administrations can achieve. So they sometimes they have staff which are ill-prepared or not sufficiently prepared. They have not the proper technology, and then they end up using the technology in a way that Google probably was already using in the 98 when they started. So we have on the one side a massive gap. And on the other one, I think countries being in many cases, now when COVID, for instance, is happening, end up relying on these external service providers who offer services for free. I'm not going to call any company, but there are a number of companies which these days are offering a number of tools for interaction, for video conferencing, for chatting. Who is going to be the owner of this data at the end of the day? Who will be trading that data? And the countries usually say, well, you know what? This is a crisis. We have to overcome the crisis. We don't have time to think about that. But this has been somehow the late motive for the last 20 years. So we still need to reduce this. And the other thing that I think is critical, and I, I would love to learn your opinion, is this doesn't have to be a conversation of only technical people because the data are being used from ordinary people who know nothing out of that. And so then we have an asymmetry. One of the interesting movements in the crypto space is ownership of data and ways in which the technologies used around the, uh, the blockchain to make data a unique asset in the sense that you can't copy a file and, and replicate it, that you can create digital assets that are unique. I think we'll open an interesting space around how data can be both monetized and protected and, and owned by individuals and then offered for a price. I think it'll be interesting uh, to follow this over the next number of years to see how technologies emerge, uh, how individuals are beginning to protect their data, how individuals are giving their data, and how they're being remunerated uh, for that data. Um, there are three dimensions, as far as I know, in that area. One is usus, meaning you use information whatever you want, whenever you want, in what, whatever platform you want. The second is abusus, meaning I can eliminate the information whatever I want from whatever platform, which today is outside of our scope by all means. And fructus, meaning I sell my data whenever I want, how many times I want. And Germany said, you also have to sell your data and pay taxes for that. But now none of those things is happening. Today is in the imagination. We don't have regulation that protects us from that. So I'm sure, as you said, this is going to be something that we will see. Are, are those Latin terms? Fructus? I think so, yes. <laughs> no, not fructos, not sugar. <laughs> um, okay. The other area that I want to touch on before we move on is the whole area around open APIs, algorithms, mm -hmm. transparency on algorithms, how to interrogate algorithms, what are the rules behind mm -hmm. them, the capacity to identify biases. How as a global institution should we be thinking about and dealing with all of those issues? Okay. So... The algorithms, the more robust they become, the more effective are the recommendations, the prioritization of the information, the outputs they have. So they can identify, for instance, voice, they can identify images, they can identify our movements, they can identify patterns, which they use a lot for COVID. And also they can predict, they can predict what is the next search they will do or what is the next movie that you will watch on Netflix. So all these elements are becoming more and more sophisticated, but for most of the citizens, this is a black box. We don't understand. And the truth is when you interview those who build robust algorithm, for instance, the deep learning algorithm, they say that even those who create the algorithm, they don't fully understand how they work because they take very sophisticated ways of processing the information. Now, we all are users of information, but on top of that, we are all trainers of the algorithms. So if we have this conversation on a regular basis, 
probably those who are recording this information can predict the kind of things we are doing. And we do all the time that with every service that we consult, we train the algorithms and the algorithms learn from us. The problem is we have seen in the last couple of years that these algorithms sometimes are trained in a way that can affect or can discriminate people because of their social economical background, their ethnicity, or other aspects for recruitment, for providing an insurance, for allocating a benefit. So if those are going to be, for instance, public services, they need to be regulated in a way that they don't discriminate because otherwise it becomes an automation of the inequality. And that is really problematic. And this is fairly a new topic based on the work of a massive weapons of destruction of cartooning. So on the one side, those who offer these algorithms will need to find ways of offering either accountability, transparency, or make them accountable when it's required to be sure that this is not harming anyone and if you find that, how to make that happen. But on the other side, one of the tricky things that I think are behind is we humans are full of bias. So we blame the algorithms, but at the same time, the algorithms are inheriting some of the bias we have. So this is a fascinating conversation because it's this merge between human and technology in a sophisticated way. And the more advanced they are, the more we will rely on them to identify cancer and early stage and this sort of thing. So again, that is going to get increasingly expected to generate a gap between those who understand how to build those algorithms and those of us who are only trainers of algorithms that we don't understand. Now, I was at a conference last year in which Daniel Kahneman, the behavioral economist, was speaking, and he's a large proponent of AI. He has very little faith in humans' decision-making and ability to, uh, right. to be non-biased in that decision-making. So I thought it was fascinating, his take on algorithms. But what is what is your reaction, Bob, when you open your phone, you have been talking with your wife or family about and going to the beach, and then you open your phone and it's offering you something that is exactly aligned with that. What no, do you say? No, I'm you freaked think? out. I'm like, how the hell do they know what I was looking at? Exactly. Why are they, they giving this to me? What other information they have? I definitely feel that my privacy is being impinged upon. But by the same token, it's an interesting question on what is critical thinking? is AI and algorithms become more pervasive. At one point, do we trust the information that's being given to us? And at what point do we question what's being given to us? And are there certain types of information that we should say, oh, okay, this is fine, I'll take this and move on? Or should we really question whether indeed this is a biased information that's being given to us? It's an open question. It is difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you search how the government of China is facing the COVID and you search that in google.cn or google.mx, you will find completely different information. It's not only for geographical uh, reasons. Also, the information is adjusted and customized based on a number of things. Now, if people knew that this is the reality and don't see the first result of Google as the main source of truth, we will be okay. But I think we need to move more in this direction in terms of it. Yeah, and maybe this isn't the most pressing issue for our clients and the students in the countries that we're working with who are just trying to get access to the internet, let alone have access to TV programs or radio programs. So there's quite a gap that I think is... Okay. I have the feeling that the topic of privacy and data awareness is similar to what you see today in the global warming. In the 70s, the global warming was a conversation of a couple of freaks and scientists and then 
took a couple of decades for being a matter of global concern. And we are still behind where we have to be. And I think with the data, will be happening something similar. Has to, the, the expanding circles of communities talking about these things will take a while for countries to understand. This is also important. And it's moving quickly. I just saw this morning, the OpenAI lab has opened up an API to their machine learning algorithms. And the predictive nature of their text is difficult to ascertain whether it's computer or human driven. And they've applied it to images now as well. So I think the field is moving pretty quickly. I saw in India, they had thousands and thousands of pictures of kids who were lost. And using the AI and face recognition in hours, they could identify the location of thousands of kids. So this is the tricky thing. There's no plan B. It's not like with or without technology. There's not opt out. You have to use technology. And most of the cases is recommended, but in a smart way. And then is when the caveats start. Now, along with emergence of uh, fields like uh, AI and machine learning, I think we're going to see a reemergence of ethics and philosophy as well on, on how to uh, ethically uh, deploy technology. Absolutely. This has been fantastic. One final question is any books that you've read that you'd recommend to us or podcasts that you recommend? Sure, of course. One I read recently, which was amazing, is called Architects of Artificial Intelligence. I think it's a journalist from the New York Times, and he interviewed dozens and dozens of experts on AI, some of them engineers, geeks, writing coding, but also philosophers to understand how far are we from the global artificial intelligence, one that is not narrow, but is broad and can take decisions in much more elements than the one has been trained, and what could be the consequences, what would be the ethical tensions, and how to think about that. And one of the interesting conclusions of the book is nobody really knows when the wide or the general AI will come, but it will be a, a non-turning point. I think it's going to be very interesting to see that, and I strongly recommend to have a look at that book. And in terms of podcasts, one that I listen a lot when I'm running is Hidden Brain. They try to find a regular problem of life and show how people have been addressing that. The one that comes to the top of my head is a lady who all her life said, I have no problem with death. I have no fear. And she was a nurse. She was supporting a lot of people who were in their last days. Uh, she was always saying that to their kids. And the day that she got sick, she got terrified. So all the stories about that. That's a good one. On the architects of AI, the one that I'm sure you've read it also is uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction, which I thought was a good Yeah, yes, of course. On, uh, some of the risks and the biases uh, in, uh, in algorithms. Um, awesome. One final question for you, for anybody who might be out there listening. This is our first conversation, but a call to action. Any call to action for anybody who's listening? Uh, I mean, this pandemic has been a disaster from the human, the economical, the social point of view. But one thing that I think is extremely positive is parents or caregivers are understanding how challenging is the role of educators. So many are just counting the minutes to get back to normal because they cannot cope with the complexity of supporting the learning on a daily basis. So I think this is a call to action to everyone to understand that the learning is not happening only in the classroom. Learning is happening all the time, and the more active and engaged we are with those who are learning, and we are learning at all ages, I think we will move in a direction we want, which is offering more opportunity for people to understand the world in which we are living. I myself have to get better and uh, diversify my son's attendance at the school of Fortnite and introduce some other subjects. <laughs> Absolutely. So, all right, Chris. Well, this has been fantastic. Good chatting. It's been awesome having you uh, on the team for the past year. And I'm looking forward to celebrating your second anniversary. You are being a mentor and a source of endless information. Thank you for the support that you guys are doing and 
happy to follow the next podcast or the next interview. Thank It's you. It's been fun. Thanks, man. Thank you.